0: Welcome to episode 120 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks for joining us. Should professional historians write for the general public? And if so, who is this public they are trying to reach? And when historians do try to write for the public, how do they manage to make their work readable and accessible without sacrificing scholarly integrity? What role does politics and even activism play in popular history writing? These are questions that the historical profession, and in many respects the nation, are currently wrestling with. But as our guest today, Nick Widham, reminds us, they are not new questions. Widham's book is titled Popularizing the Past, Historians, Publishers, and Readers in Postwar America. And he is our guest on this episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Wittem tells the stories of five historians, Richard Hofstadter, Daniel Boorstin, John Hope Franklin, Howard Zinn, and Gerda Lerner, who in the decades after World War II published widely read books of national history. He argues that we should understand historians' efforts to engage with the reading public as a vital part of their post-war identity and mission, he shows how the lives and writings of these five authors were fundamentally shaped by their desire to write histories that captivated both scholars and the elusive general reader. Widham also reveals how these authors' efforts could not have succeeded without a publishing industry and a reading public hungry to engage with the cutting-edge ideas, then emerging from American universities. Nick Widham will be with us in a minute. But first, we need to take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion, that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture politics and ideas we keep this going by your generous financial donations if you like what you read or you hear at current and want to support our work and that by the way includes this podcast our daily opinion features the way of improvement leads home blog and our new blog the arena As well as our narrative podcast, The History of Evangelicals and Politics, which is now on a brief hiatus, then head over to CurrentPub.com and click the red membership button. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on X at TWOLH Podcast. You can follow me over at that place called X, used to be called Twitter at J-O-H-N-F-E-A 1, or you can follow Current at Current underscore Pub 1. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet, and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nick Widham is associate professor of United States history at University College London and the head of department at the University's Institute of the Americas. Before arriving at University College London, Nick worked as lecturer and then senior lecturer in American history at Canterbury Christ Church University. From 2019 until 2022, Nick was co-editor of the Journal of American Studies, His leadership in learning and teaching has been recognized by a senior fellowship of the Higher Education Academy. Nick's research on the post-1945 United States is situated at the intersections of political, cultural, and intellectual history. His central preoccupation is how intellectual communities use their knowledge and expertise to intervene in American political and cultural life. This interest has led him in a variety of different directions, encompassing the histories of protest, imperialism, and anti-imperialism, historiography, and memory. Nick is the author of The Cultural Left and the Reagan Era, U.S. Protest and Central American Revolution, published in 2015 with I.B. Taurus. That book won the British Association for American Studies' Arthur Miller Prize. He is also the co-editor of Reframing 1968, American Politics, Protest, and Identity. That was published in 2018 with Edinburgh University Press. His new research project is a group biography of prominent American public intellectuals and anti-war activists Noam Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg, Marilyn Young, and Howard Zinn, and it is tentatively titled The Affinity Group. A Story of Ideas and Dissent in Wartime. But our interview today is based on his most recent book, published in 2023 with University of Chicago Press, popularizing the past, historians, publishers, and readers in post America. Our guest today on the podcast is Nick Widham. He is the author of Popularizing the Past, Historians, Publishers, and Readers in post America. Nick, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I always, this is a normal first question for my guests. Tell me a little bit about the background of this book. What are you interested in as a historian and how does that feed into your, your piece here, your book? How'd you get interested in the subject?
1: Yeah, so I'm a professional historian of the United States, but as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not myself, American. Um, And I've always been interested in the ways in which historiography is debated by the historical profession, but I've also always been interested in the question of how the historical profession shapes public understandings of the past. And one of the things that I noticed in the previous research that I'd done, and just kind of being in the world as an American historian, and this might be something that you identify with. You know, you, you regularly read pieces, often by quite famous historians, complaining about the fact that the American historical profession is nowhere near as good now at engaging with the general public as it was at some point in the past. You know, those pieces come back almost year after year, very regularly. And I kind of wanted to historicize that and try and work out what the origins of it were and and what it, what impact it had. So I, I went back and I went back as far as, as 1939, a piece by the famous Columbia University historian, but also a journalist, Alan Nevins. The piece in the Saturday Review of Literature asked this question, what's the matter with history? And Nevins' answer is that, that historians aren't any good at writing. So he's saying this as early as 1939, and that there isn't a good enough balance in the American historical profession between people who can research effectively and people who can write effectively. But like as I do in the introduction of the book, there have been multiple other versions of that argument going through from the 19th the late 30s when Nevins was writing all the way through till the early 21st century and i really wanted to kind of problematize and, and 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 work out whether that discourse was true and so i became interested in historians as writers as well as as researchers i became interested in the important work they collaborative work they do with the publishing industry and i also became interested in like how historians work was read and received and understood in its kind of paperback form by non-academic readers, people who might have some familiarity with American history, but who are not themselves professional historians or adjacent to the profession. So that was a kind of intellectual problem I was looking at, but also the kind of professional problems that professional historians are familiar with, the idea that when you're trying to be hired, when you're trying to get tenure, when you're trying to get promotion, there might often be a sense of skepticism towards histories that are deemed to be too popular and therefore not scholarly enough. And so I wanted to go looking for historians who, whose intellectual bona fides we probably couldn't question, but who had gone and written for, for mass market audiences. And you know, I settled upon the five people who I, I profile in the book, Richard Hofstadter, Daniel Borston, John Hope Franklin, Howard Zinn, and Gerda Lerner. And to be honest with you as well, these are all just inherently fascinating people. I found them fascinating to, to research about write about, and I hope that people who read the book find them interesting to read about too. So really, I just wanted to think about the impact historians have as popular writers, um, but perhaps also to give the profession a new set of ways of assessing the importance of engaging with popular audiences and not being too skeptical of that as as a goal.
0: Yeah, there's so much there to think about these pieces that you talked about in the beginning of your answer. It's almost a phenomenon now. You know, someone writes a piece like Jill Lepore or someone says, we're not writing enough for the public. And then social media explodes and everybody starts citing their pieces that they wrote in the Washington Post or, no, look, we are doing this. It's, it's almost like a cycle now. Yeah, these are five historians uh, you just mentioned who anyone who is interested in kind of American culture in the 20th century should read, you know, they're, they're embedded in their time, right? Speaking of mass paperbacks, I recently picked up a copy of Christopher Lash's 1979, The Culture of Narcissism, and reread that. And, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but, you know, that old saying, it sure does rhyme, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> especially in the last five, 10 years or so in the United States. So you take these five historians, Hofstadter, Borsten, John Hope Franklin, Howard Zinn, and uh, Gilda Lerner, right? Is that right? Yeah, I was getting confused with Gilda Radner there for a second. No, it's
1: it's Gerda, Gerda.
0: Gerder. right? You split those five historians into two categories. So Hofstadter, and again, the focus here, I think, is mostly on his book, American Political Tradition and the you know the men who made it. Published in 1948, you know we could probably do a whole episode on that title, and then we have uh, Daniel Borsten's three-part series, The Americans, which ran from well, roughly? Let me see, fifty-eight, 1958, and then the last volume was 1973. You put those Hostetter and Borsten in the general readers camp, and then you have the other three, Zinn, Lerner, and Hope Franklin, in the activist. Readers, explain the difference between these two categories.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I suppose I should probably start with a very brief caveat, which is to say that, like a lot of academic categorization, mine is definitely open to question and query. And I guess I think of it as an ideal type that helps us to think differently about post-war historical writing, rather than a kind of ironclad law that everyone has to fit into one category or another, and and there's no blurring of the edges. There definitely are blurrings of the edges, but nonetheless, I think that distinction between historians who wrote for general readers on the one hand, and historians who wrote for activist readers on the other is a, is a useful one. So when I talk about general readers, this is a really, really regularly used concept in the kind of back and forth between historians and their publishers in the in the second half of the 20th century. And by historians in particular, it's often used without discipline and without a kind of sharp definition. I think it's often employed by historians who are trying to convince publishers that they're going to sell more than a few hundred copies, right? I'm writing for the general reader. As I kind of dug into what that really meant by looking at lots and lots of correspondence between historians and publishers, you know, I began to realize that it usually denotes quite a limited set of readers. It's some educated readers, Bain readers, readers who are engaged with literary culture in some way, who want the books that they read to provide intellectual stimulation, as well as kind of entertainment and distraction. And this is often what's referred to as the kind of middle brow of of 20th century American culture, right? So there's a kind of literary thing going on there when we think about the general reader, but there's also something political. The, The assumption from the historians and the publishers was usually that these readers would be kind of reading from within the political consensus of the period that they're living in. That they wanted history books that explained and cast light on contemporary American politics, but not necessarily ones that fundamentally challenged the status quo. And it's on that concept of challenging the status quo where where it's maybe useful to then talk about activist readers for, for popular history, because they were a different audience, perhaps less explicitly identified by historians and publishers, but nonetheless definitely there who had more specifically political rather than literary reasons for reading history. These readers were often rooted in one way or another in the social movements and rights revolutions of the 1960s and afterwards. So they wanted books that explained racial and gendered inequality, that explained war and militarism, that told history from the bottom up rather than from the top down, right? These were people who were sometimes activists themselves, were sometimes school or college students who wanted new ways of thinking about the world and about American history, or sometimes just people who weren't necessarily activists, but were sympathetic to the the activist movements of the period. And I think what's really important to point out is that during and after the 1960s, the publishing industry becomes just as interested in selling books to these audiences as it does to those general readers who are much more comfortably part of the, the liberal consensus, right? So there are commercial opportunities with both sets of readerships, and they're kind of pounced on by the publishing industry as well as by the historians who are writing the books for them.
0: Yeah, and we'll dig into this here, some of these specific authors. I just had a quick follow up. You know, all five of these historians, it's fair to say, are political, right? Their works are political. And I don't mean that in terms of just political, like objective, whatever, quote unquote, objective political history. They're bringing politics, they're making political statements, they're making political statements in different ways. Today, I think when we hear historians debating, you know, how much politics or activism should be part of historical writing. Sometimes politics and activism kind of, in my view, at least, they mean the same thing, or at least people think they mean the same thing. But what's the difference, I mean, between, you know, history writing that's driven by politics and history writing that's driven by activism, right? Because they are different. Hofstetter and Borston. Are not the kind of activists that like Zinn and Lerner were,
1: right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's a really, really sharp observation. And I, I think that the kind of maybe the difference in the way that you put it between political writing and, and activist writing is that, yeah, political writing really th- seeks to engage with, potentially critique the particular moment in which it's. In which it's intervening, right? So in the 1940s when Hofstadter is writing, or or between the 1950s and the 1970s when Borston was writing, you can see in almost every pages, in every page, sorry, of the books that they're writing, there's politics there, right? There's a there's an, a, a really keen engagement with the present as well as the past, trying to use the past to explain the present, not bending the past to explain the present, but trying to make it make it work. But they are sitting back, I think, and casting their eye over the political landscape to try and explain it, sometimes, especially in Hofstadter's case, to try and take it down to kind of provide a withering, a withering maybe laconic critique, but nonetheless surveying the scene. Whereas I think the difference between them and Franklin and Zinn and Lerner, those three are activists, I think, specifically because they are seeing the status quo. They're doing some of the same things. They're archly political. They're seeing the past and the present as being informed by each other. But they also want to use their books in different ways to change people's minds about what should happen in American politics, how equality should be defined, how the kind of organizational structure of the American political system needs to change in order to allow that equality to, to flourish, those types of questions. And I think, I think that's probably what distinguishes a historian writing for activist audiences from just a kind of a simply political. one. so I think it's a really important distinction.
0: Yeah, it is. And sometimes it gets blurred, I think, in our debates today. Right? You know, all history is somewhat political in, in nature, right? Let me ask you another question about Hofstadter because I think Hofstadter illustrates this difference. I love the way you describe Hofstadter as kind of what, what? did you say? Pulling back or sitting back and sort of chronicling. In some ways, he's often described as this consensus historian, right? America is defined by liberal ideas, individualism, uh, economic, uh, you know, capitalism, free markets. You know, these kinds of Adam Smith meets John Locke you know, this kind of stuff. Yet that was not Hofstadter's sort of political persuasion. So he's kind of this example of the historian who's kind of wants to chip away, not necessarily make a full blown assault on this consensus, because he wants to be a traditional historian and say, here's America. He comes short of saying, and I disagree with it. (laughs) I think he feels uncomfortable kind of doing what some of these later activist historians do and make make central critique. Elaborate a little more on the challenges that Hofstadter faced. Again, he's seen as a consensus historian in terms of the way he understands the American experience, but I think a lot of people have assumed that he agreed with that as well. So talk about that division in his kind of mind as he's writing the American political tradition.
1: That's a really good point. So, I mean, Hofstadter's biography is interesting. In, in in some ways, it's quite similar to a lot of the historians I write about in the book, which is that it's informed by a deep engagement with the politics of communism in the 1930s. Not all of the five that I write about were members of the, of the Communist Party of the United States, but Hofstadter was very, very briefly. Uh, he then becomes really a dissident of the party, especially after the Nazi-Soviet Pact, uh, and and in that, that's a kind of a journey that a lot of American intellectuals, young American intellectuals in particular, in this moment, go on. But he remains left-wing. He remains, I uh, kind of identifying, I think, as as quite radical and quite informed by the the radicalism that he kind of grows up with, and he goes to uh, he goes to graduate school at Columbia University in New York City, which is obviously a, a radical metropolis in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. So. He really wants to skewer American capitalism, right? And he calls the American political system in the introduction to the book he calls it a democracy in cupidity rather than a democracy of fraternity, right? And you and you can you know that is that is a nice example in in microcosm of the wonderful way he uses language, the wonderful way he employs a kind of a wry sense of humor to make quite a sharp political point. So that's the you know the goal of, of the American political tradition and the men who made it is to is to demonstrate how similar all American politicians have been, regardless of their party affiliation across time, right? So they're mainly biographical essays in the book, going back to um, canonical figures like the founding fathers, through Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, up to Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. And each of the essays in the book is kind of a, a takedown of these figures. And even Franklin Roosevelt is given a really withering treatment um, from the left of the political spectrum as someone who is kind of devoid of a core set of political ideas, which you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners will disagree with that as a kind of characterization of Roosevelt. But nonetheless, this is what Hofstadter thinks, writing in 1948. The only real hero in the book is the abolitionist, agitator and activist Wendell Phillips. And I think that's precisely because he held political principles that Rejected the mainstream and rejected the traditional political system. So, you know, in this sense, there's a little bit of the activist in Hofstadter, but he's definitely sitting back and providing that broad, wry overview. But I think one of the things that he gets caught up in, and this goes back to your point about consensus and perhaps helps to explain it, is that when we think about those general readers that Hofstadter was definitely writing for, and that his publisher, Alfred A. Knopf Incorporated, was definitely pitching his book towards. They were part of the liberal consensus, right? They were well-educated. They might have been liberal. They might have been conservative, but they were committed to the political status quo. And this means that they end up liking Hofstadter not because of the kind of quality of his left-wing arguments, which is probably why he would have liked them to have liked the book at the moment, he wrote it anyway, but because of his acerbity and his wit uh, and his brilliance as a writer. Um, and this meant that often the readers who, who read the book in the, in the 40s, uh, late 40s, they didn't discern or they avoided engaging with the really political dimensions of his work whilst they celebrated its literary merits. And you know, going through and reading every single review, and there were dozens and dozens of them in, in regional newspapers all across the country, you know, everyone zeroed in on the literary merits of the book, and far fewer on the on the political implications of it. So I think that's what ended up meaning that Hofstadter got characterized as a consensus historian. People didn't quite see the the politics in there um in the way that, that he meant them to.
0: And then you have Daniel Borston, University of Chicago historian, who really ends his career in kind of the public history. I don't know what you want to call it, but it was either the librarian of the librarian of Congress. Congress right. Yeah. He it's a Smithsonian for a while. Yeah. He's often tagged as one of these consensus historians as well. I think one of the values of your book to kind of the general reader or maybe the undergrad who took a course and learned, you know, in a 15 minute kind of part of a lecture about who the consensus historians were, you know, that Hofstetter and Borsten were kind of clumped together. But Borston's approach to at least writing for a general audience was very different than Hofstetter's, correct?
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, And to illustrate that point, it's worth just going back and saying something more about Richard Hofstadter, which is um, when he was writing the American political tradition, he wrote a letter to his friend, Alfred Kazin, the the literary critic, uh, in which he said, really, I want you to know that I'm a suppressed literateur, and that you shouldn't classify me with the genus historicus who write in a kind of boring way. You should classify me with the genus literarius, right? Uh, and so he's, he's got this idea that a good popular historian should be a literateur, should, should write with flair and style and brio. Uh, and I think Boston has a very different idea. He rejects the idea of the, the writer and the historian as a literateur. For him, popular history is supposed to be practical. It's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be telling Americans something important about America, the nation's national identity. You know, that really comes through in those three volumes of Of his kind of multi-volume work, *The Americans*, which really kind of focus on what we might think of as celebrations of the social history of the American bourgeoisie. Um, You know, this is not social history told from the bottom up. It's it's social history of the kind of middle class. It's really interesting, and I don't think these books get as much attention as perhaps they deserve. I'm not necessarily suggesting they're brilliant accounts of American politics, but they have some really sharp insights about the rise of professions, for example, doctors, lawyers, bankers, again, the types of people that Boston imagined might be reading the book. They tell in really interesting, pithy ways, the story of the hotel. Uh, as it grew in America as a kind of institution of the department store, of, of how beef became America's meat of choice, of, of how the mass production of ice changed American consumption. You know, all kinds of interesting stories that you can see would be feeding into the lives and the interests of suburban middle-class readers who would be, who would be buying and engaging with these books. So yes, they're very different to Hofstadter's style. And as you kind of mentioned, by the end of the trilogy, by the 1970s in particular, Boston's politics are are quite conservative. He, you know, again, he's very briefly a member of the Communist Party as well, but turns more, more firmly away from the Communist Party towards the center and the right than Hofstadter does. Yeah, when he publishes the final volume of the Americans, he's working director of the National Museum of History and Technology at the Smithsonian. And that's a political appointment by the Nixon administration. And really, Boston, by that point in his life, has come to explicitly identify with the GOP. He's really rejected liberalism. He has an angry response to the new left, the counterculture, the Black Power movement. He even speaks at the Republican National Convention in 1972 and argues that the party really needs to embrace a kind of positive conservative vision of US history. And he's one of the many conservatives who argues that the party really needs to embrace that label of the party of Lincoln, right, to look back to American history in order to in order to have a, have a set of conservative roots in a politician like Lincoln. So he's really different from Hofstadter, not only in those kind of literary terms, but also in political terms. But I think the American historical profession are often more dismissive of Boston than perhaps uh, he deserves. And if we go back to those books and some of his other writings, I think in in doing the research for this, I was almost surprised at how good I thought they were in in terms of the sharpness of the pictures that they paint of of some of these, these moments in American history. Whereas compared to Richard Hofstadter, for example, he's not as common a reference point. I think in mean, reading lists, let's say at either undergraduate level or graduate level,
0: it was interesting. A little while ago, I gave a talk. I was thinking about some of these questions, and in the late '60s, you know, there was this huge debate in the AHA over, you know, the Vietnam War and activism, and you know, people like Eugene Genovese versus sort of those on the on the left, Jesse Lemish and Zinn right? You know this pro- story probably better than I do. But I think it was Jesse Lemish who made the case that, I can't remember if it was borsten or Oscar Handlin now, it might have been both, but they were kind of testifying before Congress and doing all kinds of public speaking at the convention and so on and so forth. And they were saying, our work's not political. Right, and and I think Lebisch's point was, you know, because they were getting attacked for being too political. You know, I think Borsten and Hofstetter were both very political, obviously, probably from different sides, or they were from different sides of the aisle. That's a really interesting comparison, and it kind of, at least for my mind and the mind of when I think about my students, the consensus school was a little more complicated than just Hofstetter, Borsten, Lewis, Hart's, Murdhall, you know, Myrdal, you know <laughs> this kind of crew. One of the things I really like about your book, and you mentioned this at the beginning too of the interview, is how you put these writers into a sort of larger context of the publishing industry and still staying with Borsten and Hofstetter for a moment. These guys really benefited from the rise of the mass paperback, right? Historians were writing, our listeners can't see this, but I pulled off my shelf copy of, of C. Van Woodward's Mass Paperback, this, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, four ninety five. And then I got Christopher Lashes here, The Agony of the American Left, $1.95 with vintage books published in uh, probably the 60s. Uh, yeah, 66. Talk a little bit about Mass Paperback and how these and the publishing industry generally kind of allowed Borsten and Hofstetter to reach the audiences that they reached.
1: Yeah, it, it's a really good point. And given its ubiquity in everyday life for us now, I don't, think we, I don't think we tend to think of the paperback as a form of technology today. But I think that means that, that it's easy to forget that in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, the paperback really revolutionized the circulation of, of knowledge in ways that I would say are akin to the rise of the smartphone in the 21st century, right? The paperback was mass producible. It was cheap to buy, as your reference to the prices of those books uh, were, although 195 and 495 would have been a lot more money then than it is now. But still, they were still relatively affordable to buy. They were easy to transport, both for the publishing industry to get to bookshops, but also for readers to keep in their pockets or in a bag. What they did was they allowed American publishers to provide readers, who were also, of course, consumers, with access to a much wider range of nonfiction writing than they would have been able to do. With cloth bound books. And they were able to do it in a really handsome way, too. I mean, what listeners wouldn't have been able to see from the two books that you just showed me was the fact that they, you know, they're not only cheap and inexpensive, but they're quite beautiful objects. And the, the, the striking designs on their covers and things like that are really draw attention to them. And they demonstrate that they're objects to be sold as well as objects to be sort of consumed for their literary and intellectual merit. So actually, I would say it's not just Boston and Hofstadter, it's all five of the historians I write about in one way or another who who find the paperback to be a transformative technology in terms of the way that their ideas were able to communicate with with non-academic audiences and you know i wouldn't want to be too much of a technological determinist about this to say that it's technology that transforms history and nothing else but i don't think without the paperback any of their books would have sold anywhere near as many copies as they did. And we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not in several cases, millions of copies of books. And I think it's almost certain to say that without the paperback, the the copies that were sold would most likely have stayed in the hands of much more specialized readers, right? Other professional historians, maybe students at at the graduate level, but not the undergraduate level and below. So I think that's a a really important story. And it's one that, you know, if listeners want to just get a little bit more of a sense of, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post a few months ago sort of telling this story in in microcosm and again arguing that we that we need to look back at the moment of the 40s and 50s and realize that the paperback was as transformative for our our ideas as the smartphone has been for, for us in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, that's good. I'll link to that Washington Post piece too when I do the post sort of announcing this episode. The fact that these were mass paperbacks, right, assumes a kind of public, right? You know, a, a reading public. You know, I mean, you talk about. I think I think you mentioned this. I'm maybe exaggerating what you said. You know, but you walked into like a drugstore or a supermarket or something, and there'd be a rack of books with Richard Hofstadter on it, or, or <laughs> Daniel Borston or C. Van Woodward. You know, that doesn't happen today in kind of mass culture. There seemed to be a desire to. Am I right? Or how how should I parse this out? A desire for people to want to read these books that perhaps you know, I guess today it's the same with maybe like a David McCullough or, a, you know, there's all these history books make it to the top of the bestseller list. And, you know, there are these nationalistic kind of patriotic books. There was a sense in which in the 40s and 50s and 60s, now again, learners is even into the 90s, right? But where they're they're writing for a an audience that no longer, a mass audience that no longer exists. You know, I'm thinking of like a while ago, I don't know if you, you know, this is kind of an obscure reference, but I was reading uh, there was a cover story in Harper's by the public intellectual Alan Jacobs talking about how like Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, was on the cover of Time magazine. Like there was no way that there's no way that would happen. Or you, you think of like of of uh, Daniel Rogers is kind of fracturing of of America or, yeah. you know, I think Corey Robin, the political scientist, has written about publics, right? why was that
1: world so different than today? Or was it? Yeah, I, I think I would do two things. I would definitely not disagree with the premise of the question, but I would, I would want to make sure that we don't slip into that simplistic dichotomy that I, I referred to right back at the beginning of, of kind of looking back on a golden era when, yeah. when historians and scholars were able to do all kinds of things that they're not able to do now, right? So I wouldn't want to exaggerate the difference between the two things. But I, I think there's, 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 a, there's a real important core element of truth in what you're saying. So I think one one of the things that makes that moment different is that point about technology in the paperback, that that is a a transformational technology. and And it just means that in that particular moment, there are publishers who want to publish paperback books that are rooted in specialized learning that's coming out of American universities at a really significant rate in that period of time they think and they know they were right that they could sell those books to mass market readers. So it's it's not just historians, but it's political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists, literary critics are all able to do this. So there, there's something there. And I think that also speaks to the kind of two waves of really significant expansion of university attendance that take place, uh, university attendance that take place in America in the second half of the 20th century, right? The first after the, the Second World War and the GI Bill, which means more and more Americans, mainly men in that moment, are are going to college. Um, But then in the 60s and 70s, as you know, there are a series of kind of revolutions on American university campuses that mean that more working class people, more black and Latinx people, more women are attending college. There are therefore audiences for those, kind of new audiences for those books to be sold that exist in really important ways. And I think what we see now is is slightly different from that you know the new technology is not about book publishing um, although i still think the paperback book is a really important technology there's definitely others that compete with it right we'll think about social media we'll think about podcasts we'll we'll think about other kind of new technologies that mean that historians aren't pouring as much of their attention into writing books as they perhaps once were but we might also think about the way in which and this is a publishing industry phenomenon i don't think it's a retreat of the historical profession but i think it's a publishing industry phenomenon the way in which the celebrity historian is much less likely these days to be tied to an American university or have a PhD in history. For example, you know, um, we might get people like Glenn Beck or Bill Bryson, or like you said, David McCullough uh, at the top of the history in inverted commas bestseller list. Uh, and when I say in inverted commas, that's not to dismiss them, right? They're sometimes great writers and they communicate about the past in really interesting ways. But while They aren't as professional historians, and so that's something I think the profession needs to kind of grapple with. But definitely shouldn't be too. um, We shouldn't slip into renunciations of the profession as a as a group of people who don't want to talk to the public anymore. I just think that the nature of what that means is changing.
0: Absolutely, yeah, that's a good answer. As you were talking, just some different things came to mind. Little promo here for this podcast. Some of you may remember the interview we did a while back with Stephen Prothero, the religion scholar who talked about almost the identical thing happening in the world of religious studies. And he did a a very interesting study of the religion paperbacks produced by Harper and Rowe in the 50s. And I'm blanking on the name of the editor there. He wrote a whole book about him. Some of the things that Nick was just saying about the large numbers of people attending universities in the wake of post-World War II, go back and check out our episode with Ellen Schrecker on this very thing where she was talking about the kind of state of the university in the 1960s. I think those two episodes really resonate well with some of the things that uh, Nick is saying here. Let's talk, Nick, a little bit about John Hope Franklin. His book, From Slavery to Freedom, you know, was a sort of masterful work of history uh, from an African-American scholar. But it also became a very important book in the civil rights movement and, you know, was used, you know, to educate civil rights workers, you know, it just became the standard survey of African-American history. I love the way, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, I'm thinking it was, but you, you move from Franklin to me, in terms of historical writing, is kind of a transitionary figure in the book, because, because Franklin is, he's trying to write like a sort of, pull back kind of history uh, you know or he wants to just tell the story but mm-hmm. once his book gets in the hands of of activists it takes on a different kind of life and one that franklin sometimes not always but sometimes wasn't entirely comfortable with so talk a little bit about that how john hope franklin's from slavery to freedom sort of bridges this gap between the kind of, deta- not necessarily detached, I don't want to use that word, but the, but the historian kind of reflecting on the past and choosing a particular topic like African-Americans, which is always going to be driven with political implications. You know, compare that with the way this becomes a book that activists use without Franklin necessarily writing as you know, you put him in the activist category, but he's certainly a little different than say Zinn or or Yeah. Yeah. I hope that yeah. question makes sense. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. It it does. That chapter in the book is called John Hope Franklin and the Racial Politics of Popular History. And and I think, you know, I, I position Franklin as a kind of masterful negotiator of of i guess two different sets of racial politics that are kind of taking place across the um across the backdrop of the, the middle of the 20th century uh, and of course for any readers who aren't familiar with this fact John Hope Franklin is African American uh, historian and he becomes one of if the not if not the most famous African American historian in this moment of time so the first kind of set of ra- racial politics that he's grappling with are those of his publisher which is the publishing company that I've mentioned already Alfred A Knopf Incorporated based in New York You publish Hofstadter and and many other very famous white historians. Now, it's a mainstream publisher, and it realized in the the mid-1940s that it wanted a book uh, that was really going to speak to the long history of African-American history, right, Um, and was going to fit into the publishing house's particular version of of racial liberalism. Uh, It wanted a book that was not going to be controversial, that was going to seem objective, That, as one of the blurbers for the book on the cover said, was written by someone who did not have a chip on his shoulder um, because of his race. That was a kind of um, an approach that Franklin could fit himself into, right? Uh, In some ways, you know, Franklin was none of those things. He was a brilliant historian, but he was also, you know, a very passionate man, passionate for the cause of um, equality, against segregation, uh, against colonization internationally, and had some, you know, quite, quite. Sort of radical ideas about race, but was able to kind of conform to that that mainstream view, and that, because that's what Knopf wanted from him. So he was the idea was that he would write a book that would inform white readers about the black past in an effort to change white minds about racism. Right, this was the kind of the project of twentieth century racial liberalism was to do precisely that. And in fact, it's interesting that Franklin wasn't the first choice author to write this book. The person who Knopf originally contracted to write the book, wrote a manuscript that they found to be so dull that they had to replace him. And they got Franklin in and he was at a very early stage in his career. And he ended up just spending about 18 months working solidly on this book and nothing else in order to get it finished. So the book's published in 1947 and it spends basically the first 20 years of its existence. It wasn't a poor seller because it remained in print and it went into a second edition in the 1950s, but it wasn't selling very many copies. Um, but it's in 1967 with its with its third edition, its fortunes are transformed. Now, on one level, that's again a story of the paperback. It's the 67 edition that is the first edition to appear in paperback. So it's cheaper and it's, it, it circulates more widely, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the more important context is that second meaning of racial politics for John Hope Franklin, which is that the book and the paperback emerge just at the moment that the black freedom struggle is, is, is really picking up steam on American university campuses, but also all across the South. And so the book really speaks to that moment in the way that, in the way that you said. It, it, it educates students learning about black history and African-American studies in, in university colleges, but it also is used to educate civil rights workers working in the South. Just the, the incredible increase in sales is remarkable. And I, in Franklin's papers, I found every single royalty statement that he had uh, for the book going right back to 1947 through to the, to the 1990s and was able to therefore plot a, plot a graph. And the spike on the graph from 67 uh, through to the early 70s was just, was just incredible. And it means that the book is not just selling in historically black colleges and universities in the South, but it's selling all across the country to university students and to, and to more general um, readers who are interested in, in this question. So eventually it becomes the history, like you said, of African-Americans. It's still in print today. It's in its 10th edition. It's now kind of posthumously continues to be authored by John Hope Franklin, but it has been taken over by the Harvard historian Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. And so, yeah, it, it becomes the kind of uh, history of African-Americans. Um, and I think that's particularly because of that post-1967 story, the way that activist audiences embrace its narrative and its arguments.
0: So how does Franklin, you know, who clearly, clearly, you know, as you said, has views on the Black freedom struggle, right? But yet, Knopf has him, you know, he doesn't have a chip on his shoulder, you know? I mean, yeah. we could have a whole podcast on that, what's going on in publishing, right? You put him in this activist camp, you know, some ways he seems a lot more like Hofstadter, you know, he wants to, he's telling a story, he has his positions, but he kind of is, you know. Anyway, on the other hand, his book becomes an activist book. How is that different from, say, the next activist you discuss, Howard Zinn, who clearly has, clearly has activism in mind from day one.
1: Right? That's absolutely right. You
0: know, with, yeah. with with his book, yeah,
1: yeah. So you know. Howard Zinn is probably going to be uh, well-known to a lot of your listeners. He's a hero of the 1960s New Left, of the anti-Vietnam War movement. He himself is very much involved in the black freedom struggle in the South because he teaches at a college in the, in the South for some of the 1960s. And his book, A People's History of the United States, which is published in 1980, published by the, the trade publisher Harper and Rowe. I think the, the real reason they picked up on, on Zinn was precisely because of his kind of controversialist activist identity as a very clear kind of radical left wing historian and public intellectual. But what they were also interested in, which I think is, is quite different to, to Franklin, like you say, was his, what they perceived to be and were right about his ability to write clearly, to write with moral urgency and to write for young people. And he's kind of contracted by uh, Harper and Rhodes to, to write this book. For school children and university kids, right? Like not necessarily as a textbook, but as a, as a way of picking up on what was perceived to be a kind of new radically oriented youth market, um, in American publishing who really wanted to read histories that were, that were different to what they would have traditionally been published, uh, that what, what traditionally would they would have read in school and in college. Right. So, um, so the book then, um, is a, is a kind of It's a sensation. Uh, It sells a lot of copies in the 1980s. Um, But again, it has a kind of afterlife, a bit like Franklin's book. And here's maybe one similarity amongst all the differences, because um, it's actually in the sort of late nineties and early two thousands that the book really explodes um, because it gets picked up in a whole variety of different popular cultural formats. Um, So probably the most famous reference is one in, in the movie, Goodwill Hunting, you know, the kind of the backstory there is that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck um, grew up in the same neighborhood as Howard Zinn and were friends with him and his family. So they, you know, the the book gets referenced in that film um, and it it spiked in sales because of that. But it's also mentioned in The Sopranos. It's also mentioned in The Simpsons, uh, in the more recent film, Lady Bird, Chalamet's character is seen reading it. It kind of brings up this this kind of youth appeal. And, And what's interesting is that Good Will Hunting sees the book and Zinn very positively. The Sopranos and and the Simpsons, I think, see Zinn and the book through the lens of the culture wars and see him as more controversially, I would say, and perhaps present him a bit negatively. And I think in this sense, this goes back to that point you made about Franklin, but it's definitely also true about Zinn, perhaps even more so true about Zinn is that he kind of loses control of the meaning of his popular history. Right, Once it begins to have this enormous footprint in popular culture. People are making all kinds of arguments about the book that means that he's no longer in control of it. It's selling lots of copies, but it's perhaps being used to, to make a whole load of arguments about radical history, about the left-wing bias in inverted commas of, of American universities. And, and Howard Zinn, even though he died, um, he died quite a while ago now, uh, is still a very controversial figure um, when we talk about uh, the kind of politics of history in the United States today. So, yeah. The book is really quite different to Franklin's, and the story is quite different too. But there are also some subtle overlaps and in intersections.
0: Maybe I'll have to have you back on the show. I, in your introduction, I talked a little bit from your bio about uh, your new project. Also, is dealing with Zinn. Again, we could have a whole episode on that. I'm, I'm really interested in Zinn. I'll just throw this out there. My listeners might know this. I, I take more of a Michael Kazin approach to Zen. I agree with most of his politics, but. I'm not sure if it's history or not. In other words, I, I wouldn't assign it. I wouldn't assign it, you know, as my main textbook in a history class. Um, and again, I won't put you on the spot, and make you respond to that. The last figure uh, is Gerda Lerner. And this was fascinating. I'm under contract with a book from Oxford. So there was so much so many interesting things in the Oxford University Press History, and you know, she's writing for a university press that's also trying to do trade. and she's, you know, I think it's is it fair to say she struggled in kind of writing women's history for popular audiences? Tell us a little more about Lerner.
1: Yeah, Gerda Lerner is, is a, an absolutely fascinating figure, and, and probably of the five historians that I write about, if Zinn's maybe the most famous, Gerda Lerner's probably the least, right? Uh, the least yeah. well known outside of the academy. But I kind of I think she should be better known. And you're right; part of that's to do with the kind of the struggles that that she engaged with and so successfully kind of overcame, in a sense. So she's got a really fascinating biography. She was born in Austria in the 1920s, migrated from Central Europe, fleeing the Nazis. Uh, was involved um, upon her arrival in the United States again with the Communist Party, with women's activism in the party in particular, was also linked to Hollywood via her, her husband, Carl Lerner, who, who was a screenwriter. <laughs> Before she became a professional historian, she wrote a left-wing off-Broadway musical about women's history called Singing of Women, um, which is an amazing, I've only been able to engage with the, with the, um, with the script, but nonetheless, it's an amazing source. Um, and then she goes to graduate school in history at, at um, Columbia University, hoping that it will equip her with the knowledge to be able to write a historical novel. Um, and so it's really only as she begins to realise that she's at ho- she's at home with the idea of being a historian that she um, that she decides that she wants to become a professional historian rather than a, a writer of, of, of fiction and musicals like she had been. But, you know, she really struggles with the masculine orientation of the historical profession in the 1960s and 1970s. But I think one of the things that allows her to become so successful is precisely that the, that biography that she has. She's quite a lot older than most of the other women's historians who become famous at the same time as her. So she has a kind of age and gravitas um, that, that really make her a very successful proponent of women's history. So I think that's one kind of struggle that she had, but one that she was able to successfully navigate. The other was a, was a more... Conventionally political struggle, but it's an interesting one. And, you know, OUP is, in, is important here, who, like you say, they're a traditionally academic publisher, Oxford University Press, but they are also very interested in pushing into the trade market in the 1970s, 1980s, and, and afterwards. So in the 1960s, Lerner writes to an editor, or actually it's Lerner's agent who, who writes the letter, but writes to an editor called Sheldon Meyer at, at Oxford University Press in New York City um, to pitch her first book, which is a Joint biography of the Grimke sisters, kind of abolitionists in the in the South in the nineteenth century, and Sheldon Meyer writes back to her and says, "You know, um, this book looks great, but a, a publisher like OUP would never be in a position to, to publish a book that is so clearly is advocating women's politics and feminist politics. We would never publish such a book. So I think you should look elsewhere." And she gets about thirty other rejections from all kinds of other publishers along the same lines before she she ends up being able to publish this book. But by the 1980s, and this goes back to this point I made earlier about the commercial possibilities of publishing for activist audiences, Sheldon Meyer is actually actually then a champion for Gerda Lerner and actively brings her into the fold of OUP and says, look, we are the best best people to publish a book that is, or a pair of books as she publishes, which are actively feminist in their, in their portrayal of, um, of not just American history, but of, of kind of world history going by, right back to ancient times. So she meets with that struggle, but then she also gets all kinds of resistance because she's treading on people's toes, (laughs) Um, because she's writing ancient history, uh, she's writing medieval history, she's writing about the Middle East and Europe, as well as North America. So this is, of all the books that my book is about, this is the least conventionally American in terms of the story that it tells, even though it's definitely pitched for American audiences. So she gets all kinds of resistance in the peer review process from these specialist scholars who say... This woman is just an advocate for feminist politics. She's not a proper scholar. She can never learn the nuances of the fields that she's trying to intervene in. Uh, And she is remarkably resilient um, in the face of that um, and is skillful at navigating that process, but she's also very well supported by OUP. Um, So that's interesting. And then I guess the final version of struggle here is that her books intersected in the 1980s and the 1990s with um, what was then emerging uh, as a kind of new version of the feminist movement, focused on feminist bookstores um, and other kind of women's spaces where books circulated and sold. And that's where so many copies of her two books, The Creation of Patriarchy from 1986 and The Creation of Feminist Consciousness from 1993 were sold. Um, So they became part of a kind of feminist struggle, a feminist movement in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, And this resulted in I won't talk about this for long now, but you know it's it's really worth looking at the chapter in the book if people are interested in an extraordinarily um, emotionally effective set of responses from the readers of Learner's books, which are documented in hundreds and hundreds of letters in her papers, which are held at Harvard University. Just these incredible letters from women who who write to her and say, look one of these books or both of them has, has really transformed the way I think about my role as a woman in society, my unhappiness in my marriage, or my unhappiness in a particular job or another circumstance in my life. Um, and you've really helped me think about things differently. Um, and it's 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 in those letters and in the case study of Gerda Lerner that you can most clearly see the kind of profound personal impact of popular historical writing on individual people as they're navigating the circumstances of their lives.
0: Is there access to to learners' responses Did she ever write back to these people? That just fascinates me because you have these people asking questions of a historian that a historian is, you know, maybe not used to getting or or doesn't quite know, maybe know how to deal with. I've had this sometimes in my own career. I wrote a book, kind of anti-Trump book, and people kind of wrote me letters like almost as like I was doing counseling or something. You know, thank you for writing this book. I, I was, you know, I mean, was there any? Was were you able to read responses or no? I'm just
1: so, uh, as is so often the case with people's pr- private papers, what what is often much easier to. Um to document is is incoming correspondence rather than outgoing correspondence, yeah. um, because people were much more likely to save the letters that were sent to them than the ones that that went out. Although there are some of those in learners' papers, she was usually very short and sharp and focused in her responses, just saying thank you, I and I, I you know, I'm pleased to have, have had that effect. On you, and that you enjoyed reading my book, and, and and that that was it. I think that was because of the sheer volume and the fact that she would have just moved on to other projects. But you're right; it might also speak to the the general lack of preparedness we have as professional yeah. historians <laughs> for that type of emotional engagement. Yeah. Suddenly,
0: someone's <laughs> like, "Thank you for writing this book; it changed my life," or whatever. And you're like, "What? You know, I, I don't. How do I? What do I do now? What do I say?" <laughs> you know? Let's wrap this up. Our time is just about done. Let me just quote something from your conclusion, and maybe you can give me a short answer to this question. In your conclusion, you write, quote, popular historical writing of the kind they produced, meaning these five historians, is still possible, and it still has much to teach us. So uh, give us your kind of elevator pitch here for why popular history should still be important.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there's maybe two ways of answering that. The first is that I, I really do think um, and I kind of wish I'd pushed this argument a bit harder in the conclusion to the book, but um, that the continuing importance of books uh, and the paperback book in, in particular is is something that we really need to remember and and, and hold in focus. I don't want to sound like an antiquarian that I'm obsessed with an old-fashioned technology, but you know, even in the age of social media, podcasts, Substacks, um, this sense that we have a declining attention span. Actually, the paperback book is an incredibly effective way for the historical profession to engage with. Complexity, on the one hand, which is what we're trained to engage with, um, and a kind of intelligent, emotionally effective, engaging writer writing style, um, and so I, I really hope that that we realise that there's still a market, there's still quite a big market for historical writing pitched at general audiences and at activist audiences. So I think that's important. I think the continuing relevance of that divide between activist and general is important too. And I, I end the book talking about the examples of Jill Lepore and Ibram Kendi as as two examples who, who exemplify that, um, very different histories, very different audiences, but that, that, that keep that division going. But you know, I, I really do think I, uh, that the kind of continuing health of the historical profession lies in its ability, our ability to to communicate deep and complex ideas about the past in a, in a accessible way, in a politically relevant way, as these post war um, popular historians did. And it's, maybe it feels like it's harder and harder to do that in an era of short attention spans, but I think historians, publishers, readers alike shouldn't lose sight of the power of popular historical writing about the national past.
0: Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree. If there's one thing we can take away from your book, and there's many things we can, but one thing in light of what you just said is these debates about whether we should be writing for the public or not, or whether public history is good history or bad history, these are not new debates. I think, is what uh, Nick Widham's book, Popularizing the Past, teaches us. Again, uh, our guest has been Nick Widham, The book, University of Chicago Press, published in 2023, Popularizing the Past, Historians, Publishers, and Readers in post America. Nick, thanks so much for taking some time uh, out there, over there in London, to uh, talk with us today.
1: Thanks, John. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: You enjoyed this interview with Nick Widham Popularizing the Past is a great book. It is in paperback, so you can go out there and get a copy. But if you are interested in the history of historical writing in America, if the names Richard Hofstadter and Howard Zinn and John Hope Franklin and Gerda Lerner and Daniel Borsten, if they ring a bell to you, or if you've seen their books at like used book sales or something like that, Widom puts those books into context, uh, the mass paperbacks, the attempt to appeal to mass audiences. And again, the point here is the questions that the historical profession is wrestling with today about, say, the 1619 Project or Ibram X. Kendi, or should they bring politics into their work? Or what does this all mean for schools? You know, about what school children are learning? You know, all of this is rooted in a historical moment in American culture. And uh, Nick Whittem does an incredible job of discussing the rise of this kind of popular history, at least the rise of this popular history in post-World War II America, and the tensions that often existed between writers of popular history and academic professional history. Right at the end of the interview, I should say, he mentioned Jill Lepore and Ibram X. Kendi. He ends the book with both of those historians and and the way they have approached writing about the past. Kendi in a much more activist role than Jill Lepore, but both of them very, very political and trying to advance a particular political agenda. So uh, we didn't even get time to talk about that. I wish we had more time to discuss that. So uh, go out there and get a copy. Nick Whittem popularizing the past, historians, publishers, and readers in America. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And as always, thanks for listening, and may your Way of Improvement lead home. The Way of Improvement podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley-Hermeling. Our producer is Casey Lehman, she's out of Nashville, and I am John Fia, your host.
1: Gerda Lerner.